This is quantization. Hi, we are Arezu Talibzadeh and Kavar Shurinia, and this is our podcast on inclusion. Quantization is an independent project with support of Inclusive Design Research Center at OCAD University. Welcome to the fourth episode of Quantization. In this episode, we have a conversation between Audrey Hudson and Robin Kinsberg on color. A color has many faces. This is a code, or in a better way, a chapter title of Joseph Albers' book, Interaction of Color. We may consider this variety of faces based on the appearance of color in different conditions or based on different social contexts. Chemistry and physics of light play a huge role on perceiving color, and this part falls into the visual perception territory. At the same time, colors play a role in societies and carrying variety of understandings and meanings. We may call this part the social perception of color. Understanding and studying color requires considering so many areas, such as psychology, physiology, and genetics, physics and chemistry, culture, symbolism, and linguistics, and even politics and economy. In this episode, we are trying to track and cover functionality of color. So, let's listen to our guests, Audrey and Robin, about how we perceive and understand color. I don't know how you see color. Really. I know. Like, <laughs> right? I, I was just saying that. I was like, I don't, like, I'll call this, uh, you know, uh, greenish gray with a warm, with a warm, uh, with warm shades. But yeah. you would call that, maybe you'll call that a dark gray. With yeah. Like more black than green or. This is season one called Signal. Episode four, color. My name is Audrey Hudson. I am a faculty member in the Faculty of Design. I teach courses on color for both 2D and our 3D students. I also teach a course uh, uh, called Think Tank on sustainability and design. I teach a course that's, uh, that I developed uh, three years ago, which is hip hop and convergence culture. And then I also teach in the Faculty of Art. I teach art and education um, uh, labs and community. Dr. Audrey Hudson earned her doctorate in education from University of Toronto. Her thesis was entitled Decolonizing Indigenous Youth Studies, Photography and Hip-Hop as Site of Resilience. Audrey is an artist, designer, educator, and researcher who believes the art is a way to begin decolonizing post-secondary education by discussing his stories of colonization, race, representation, and sovereignty.
I'm Robin Kingsborough. I um, teach here at OCAD in the Faculty of Liberal Arts and Sciences School of Interdisciplinary Studies. I teach the science of color, and I also teach astronomy and the physics of time, what is time. I have a background uh, in astronomy, trained astronomer, and I also paint, so I have this um, dual interest that seems to come together really well in color, and I also teach at York University. Dr. Robin Kingsberg has a PhD in astronomy from University College London and worked as a postdoctoral fellow at the University of Mexico. Her painting experience comes from studies in Canada, France, and the UK and has paralleled her scientific development. She has curated a number of shows, including Toronto Noir Blanche, and artwork inspired by the idea of science. She has exhibited in solo and group shows for the past few years in Toronto. All right, so I guess let's start with the basics. How do we really generally, how do we see and or perceive color? And perhaps you could speak to how colors are generated, measured, and produced. So there are a lot of things that come into factor when we look at something that has color. So I usually bring in like a red piece of tissue paper or something to my class mm. at the first and say, okay, what color is this? You know, people say it's red and, you know, mm. what information do they need to say, to say that that is red? And, you know, do they all say that it's red? Mm -hmm. So you need, and we sort of brainstorm. So you need, mm -hmm. uh, so in that case, it's paper. So it's a surface. You need a source of light. If I turn the lights off, you can't see that particular piece of paper. Mm -hmm. And you need the human eye. So light, some kind of material, and then the, the optics of the human eye and brain um, give us the components that we need to say something has a particular color. And how do the how do we get the language, or how do we how does the language derive, derive um, in order for us to say that that color is red, or to say that right. the color is a specific? Yeah. Color? So there's actually really interesting work in the last mm -hmm. kind of ten twenty years on that. There's sort of these two poles. One is called the universalist camp, and they believe that just based on the physiology of our eyes, that we should just be able to see that as red mm. and the other group is called the relativist group and they um, think that actually the development of language is very instrumental mm. in terms of being able to discern colors so the universalists were sort of thought of as the truth whatever that is mm -hmm. um, for a long period of time and now the relativists are kind of coming up and mm -hmm. bringing their ideas and, and more recent studies to the, the forefront so you know we learn something is red because our mothers teach us that color is red when mm -hmm. we're young so there is definitely sort of a learning in terms of the labeling mm -hmm. of colors we do have color receptors in our eyes called cones. Nice. So there's three different types in people who have so-called normal color vision in the general population. Mm -hmm. We're called trichromats. So we've got three different colors. So we have mm -hmm. cones that are sensitive to more or less red, green, and blue colors or wavelengths of light. Mm -hmm. So, and it just depends on which of those cones is activated more or less compared to the others. So when we see something that's red, mm -hmm. our red cones are firing most of all, and mm -hmm. that's the message that goes to our brain. And it's actually like the redness 
is not anything to do with the external world. The right. redness comes as part of being a human being. So mm-hmm. the way that our eye and our brain puts the what is coming into our eye is actually red wavelengths of light or energies mm-hmm. or photons, whatever you want to call them. And they activate our red cones and they send a message to our brain. So color mm-hmm. is actually totally a human perception. It's mm-hmm. a sensation. Prior to sort of old theories, thought color was part of an object. So like a, a table has a, 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 a texture and a weight and a mass and the color was thought to be tied into the objectness of the table, Mm -hmm. but um, there was a a very important experiment done by Sir Isaac Newton that Mm -hmm. showed actually color was part of light. And he actually has this famous quote in his paper that he wrote, the rays themselves are not colored. Mm. So the rays, Mm -hmm. the red light rays that reflect off that red piece of paper, they're not red. The redness Mm -hmm. actually comes because of the human experience. Mm And speaking about the human, the human experience, do you ever or have you ever encountered um, a student that didn't call that, like didn't have that name for red? Maybe they had, uh, perhaps they had, okay, let's say blue, or perhaps they had a different name for red. Like they didn't see the red as red per se. Like because they, because, only because perhaps they had learned that red was actually, there was a different word for red. With people who are, like, there's this term that's called color blindness, which is not a great term. Mm -hmm. But there are people who can't see, for example, the red part of the um, colors, the red Mm -hmm. part of the spectrum. The spectrum runs from blue through that sort of, if I go Roy G. Bibb, then it Mm -hmm. starts at red, orange, yellow, green, blue, indigo, violet. So that's a part of light that the human eye picks up. So there are some people who, because of their genetics, can't pick up that red part of the spectrum. Mm -hmm. So they may well have learned that or they Mm -hmm. might be able to tag that because Mm -hmm. they've learned, for example, they might see it as more of a gray or more of a pink or we can't really know what they see. Mm -hmm. We actually, I think we can't know what anyone sees because we, Mm -hmm. we all have different genetic makeup. We have millions of cones in our eyes and they're starting to study now people's distributions and map the cones on the retina. Wow. Okay. And every person they study has a different map okay. and different relative numbers of blue, mm. green, and red cones. So it's likely that we all see color a little bit differently. When we agree on the mapping, kind mm-hmm. of like what our mothers taught us, so mm-hmm. what's in the external world, yeah. that stimulus or that energy comes to our eye, and then we kind of tag it with we've learned and... Mm-hmm. You know, there are some cultures where, and it usually comes with the the divisions between blue and green, sometimes red and orange, but Mm -hmm. there might be colors, um, words in other languages, say that, for example, in Korean, there's two words for green. Right. And they're actually better able to distinguish certain greens or yellow versus yellow greens. Mm -hmm. And other tribes that might have a difficulty distinguishing a blue from a green. Mm Um, so there definitely is both a cultural and a linguistic component mm-hmm. that comes in more with nuanced stuff, not okay. like 
swapping out a red for a green or something like that, mm-hmm. but more with the very close colors that might be hard okay. for people to discern. But it's very interesting, and I think people mm-hmm. are, are paying attention more to the role that language has right. on color perception mm-hmm. and the role that culture has. And just, uh, I guess, I mean, we're both, we're both teaching at OCAB. We mm-hmm. both have got uh, quite diverse students coming from every, every part of the world. And so thinking about color and culture and how do we teach our, I guess, how do we teach our students about this cult- cross-cultural um, understanding of color and especially in art and design? How do we give the, our students the tools in, uh, to communicate color in a, I guess, in an honest and truthful way while they're designing and creating? Can I ask you that question? Yes. <laughs> that, and, 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 yes. yes. And sort of, I teach the scientific. The scientific uh, part. Yeah. So what yeah. wavelengths, what energies, we do projects that are based on kind of scientific investigation. Okay. And not necessarily cultural ones. So mm-hmm. I would actually really love to hear. It's, uh, you know, we like the color, color class, uh, the students get a color class in first year and uh, in the Faculty of Design, and it's mandatory for all students to take. It is uh, very, it is an introductory course. So we do the, you know, we do the color wheel, we do the grayscale. We, uh, we learn about uh, very basic needs uh, for color. And then we expect or we hope that the students learn more color theory and application as they move on. Uh, speaking um, about, you know, projects and, and how to teach that appreciation, how to teach, you know, we, we go through colors and we look at, uh, let's say, red and what red means uh, to different cultures. Uh, so we do that in class. And sometimes students are like, oh, we would never use red in design, you know, whereas if you're if you're in the States and or in, in you know, in the U.S., using red and using red with a with a white splash is Coca-Cola. And so that mm-hmm. is like advertising. Mm-hmm. That is a positive thing, whereas using red in another culture would be like a negative thing and mm-hmm. you wouldn't do it because mm-hmm. it brings, you know, it's it's bad connotations, bad energy, bad history of using that color for that specific uh, uh, means. Uh, Can so, I interrupt you just for one second? Yes. So like in that special case of Coca-Cola being yeah. used, so like the reason that that would be chosen, like there are certainly cultural associations with red, but mm-hmm. then we also have the way our human body reads red and the fact mm-hmm. that we actually have of all the types of cones we mostly have red cones so we're sort of tuned mm. in we have what's called a warm color bias so we have naturally um, our eye will pick up reds and yellows and warm colors much more readily than blues okay. so when we look at you know a painting or something like that and we mm-hmm. use warm colors or we we choose to um, uh, make a Coke can red so it mm-hmm. pops out on the shelf, right? Mm-hmm. So we're actually exploiting, even if we didn't <laughs> do- totally understand that, yes. the fact that our bodies are tuned in for the warmer colors, which ultimately we, we evolved to match the sun's light. So the sun mm-hmm. being yellow mm-hmm. uh, and and yellow and red are close in wavelength to each other. So. So there's actually, so sometimes I do see examples of that in class and there's an underlying piece Mm -hmm. to that or the fact that blues are usually so, so dark Mm -hmm. um, because we have only a smattering of blue cones in our eyes, like 5% of all our cones or less are blue. Okay. So we're actually, so, so most blues when we see them, unless they've had some white added to them, they're naturally dark and that's because we're not registering that many photons, blue photons in our eyes because we don't have so many receptors mm-hmm. in our eyes. 
Okay. So it's Very really it's really interesting the yeah. kind of the undercurrents and 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 a lot of times people work just intuitively. Yes. That that is happening and then once they know a little bit more about how the human eye works mm -hmm. then maybe they can they draw on that be more cautious yeah yes especially in advertising and graphic yeah. design yeah. right i mean advertising is all it is based on you know drawing you in and and you know when you're creating a logo are you going to use uh what colors are you going to use and you will see a lot more reds i guess yeah. Yeah. that explains it yeah uh, than necessarily uh you know the, the the blue spectrum so that's uh that's really interesting to find out that uh that actual link i did i don't mm -hmm. know a lot about the signs of color mm -hmm. or, or really deep um into our, our cones and everything so it's really uh yeah it's great to hear that i think another um way to facilitate cross-cultural learning about color is through uh through group work so mm -hmm. really just uh having to i mean we do pro yeah it's project-based the studio-based uh course and so we do projects where students will develop uh one of the projects for the whole uh color um stream or the whole color uh, uh cohort is to create a, a culturally sensitive poster about a country other than um, something that you know. So research a, a mm -hmm. specific place and mm -hmm. create a, a poster. Now this is this does come into a little bit of um, yeah. There's a little bit contingent uh, contingency on this uh, because how do we be culturally sensitive? How is your instructor being culturally sensitive? And how are you making sure how as an instructor how are you making sure that that poster is um, or that advertisement whatever it is not going to um, to be thoughtful in mm -hmm. its in its work, right? Mm -hmm. And so that's the work I think of uh, we have to do as instructors to educate ourselves on what is mm -hmm. good design, what is ethical design, mm -hmm. and, and ethics come into play a lot in design. So uh, really bring that into uh, play, bring that into uh, the first year cohort because it should start right at the beginning. Right. right. <laughs> so that's how that's another that's another way of thinking about it. Yeah, with this ethics and uh, and inclusion. I'm excited to ask you this question. Mm -hmm. um, as a society, we've come to understand color as visual, emotional, and psychological. Um, so why do you think this is important uh, for artists and designers? And maybe if you could speak to uh, the scientific dynamics of color, which you've been kind of speaking about already. I guess, really, how do you see it uh, being applied, or how do you see the uh, students working through this idea of color uh, scientifically within their work, maybe, or within what they're writing, papers that we're writing for you? So I guess there's there's a couple of threads there. Like, mm -hmm. the psychology of mm -hmm. color mm -hmm. is actually very difficult to study, and there have been a lot of contradicting mm. studies, and... I think it's important to have um, science courses at a place like OCAD mm -hmm. because you learn science as a way of knowing and working visually is another way of knowing or working intuitively is another way of, of knowing. So within the sort of boundaries of the science worldview, you have experiments that you can repeat and that other people will get the same results. And a right. lot of the psychology experiments with color run into problems because mm. one experiment will show that red raises your heart rate and another mm -hmm. experiment will show that it doesn't raise your heart rate. So through my kind of history of uh, exploring color and looking at the science of color, I've always found contradictions within that. Okay. Yet I do 
believe just from personal experience that color does have a strong impact on people. Mm -hmm. And I think it's more like um, music, like people will hear, different people might hear the same piece of music Mm -hmm. and be moved by it in different ways. Mm -hmm. And to kind of try to measure that and put it in a box, I think is too restrictive. Mm -hmm. Like I think that there's validity in different ways of knowing and different ones can be applied in different situations. So if you're creating a piece of work, then you may not want to be stuck in the science Mm -hmm. box of having to kind of justify your results and having someone else to reproduce your results Mm -hmm. and so on. But I think knowing that that's the way that science is done and that's how we've reached conclusions about things like having so many red cones in our Mm -hmm. eyes. I mean, that's led to huge impact in terms of building knowledge for sure. So I guess with with my assignments, they're pretty, they're much more kind of straightforward where I'm looking for people to explore scientific methods. So they're doing experiments in their kitchen okay. with um, pH, for example. Mm-hmm. If you boil up red cabbage, mm-hmm. it makes red cabbage juice, mm-hmm. which is a natural indicator. So if you put it with a base like Windex, it turns green. Or if you put it with an acid like vinegar, it turns red. So I get them to kind of investigate various things. So they're sort Mm -hmm. of doing a process. Right. And that, you know, may feed into their work or it may not. Mm -hmm. But they sort of logged that somehow as as being methodical. And and certainly as an artist or designer, you may want to test out different color combinations. Mm -hmm. Or like, you know, Le Chevreux did that with his book, The Theory of uh, Harmony and Contrast of Colors. Mm. And so he went through, because he was a chemist by training, yes, he, yes. he compared every mm-hmm. color with every other color and probably drove crazy people crazy. But, <laughs> yes. you know, but, you know, Delacroix would go on pilgrimages to him to talk about color okay. and just his depth of color knowledge was yeah. tremendous. And that was in a large part due to his scientific training and he just kind of had a structure so you know for some people that Mm -hmm. works and they can Mm -hmm. take that and for other people it might be too restrictive but at least then they've had exposure to that and if they work in a more intuitive or organic Mm -hmm. way but I mean you can explore things like I've had students do pieces with using red cabbage dye Mm -hmm. on fabric or things like that right like I mean uh, yeah or yeah a lot of tea but yeah turmeric and stuff Mm -hmm. like there's a lot of natural dyes so that's another Mm -hmm. project I do sometimes with them so they investigate how dyes fix to fabrics Mm -hmm. and different fabrics work differently and if they use a mordant to help the dye does that change the color so they're kind of getting at things in a really molecular Mm -hmm. level and Mm -hmm. understanding about atoms we talk about electrons and they get really tired of that, I'm sure. Probably. As art design <laughs> students, yeah, they would. <laughs> so, but, you know, by the end of it, they've heard me say it so many times. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of, um, it's a whole other brain mm-hmm. activity. So, you know, how that crosses the boundary into inclusivity, I can't really, like, there's no kind of prescriptive way. It mm-hmm. would just kind of happen. Right. And even uh, in in kind of going back to really the basics, right? Mm Because we didn't always have a tube of paint to squeeze out and put on a canvas, Mm -hmm. right? Like that's not what, that's that's a very manufactured, very uh, kind of new concept. Mm -hmm. But um, going back to how we used to, like, you know, indigenous ways of knowing even Mm -hmm. and and looking at how 
we die, how we used to die, and where it all right. the history of that and where it all came from. That's really a, right, and mm-hmm. it's and that kind of process um, actually drove the science of chemistry, mm-hmm. like the history mm-hmm. of dye technology is strongly linked to the history of chemistry as a science. And there was mm-hmm. first this accidental discovery yep. of a dye by Perkins when he was 18 years old. Okay. And going from accident to being able to totally manipulate mm-hmm. molecules is yep. is incredible. But it does start with the, the and, uh, and certainly looking at natural dyes and natural pigments is, mm-hmm. is interesting on all kinds of levels. And also a lot of the cultural um, readings of color actually come from those dye sources like mm-hmm. talking about red those uh, certain bugs can be used to stain red like cochineal or kermes mm-hmm. and the fabric that was used for um, religious robes mm-hmm. was very expensive and so it was dyed with this um, kermes dye which is red so often you see like red of cardinals and mm-hmm. and in um medieval and renaissance painting a lot of figures are in red Mm -hmm. and so that's coming with the value of the fabric which happened to be dyed red or there might be blue like the story of ultramarine is Mm. is uh, an amazing it's an amazing beautiful pigment very laborious to make very difficult Mm. to get so it was worth more than gold in medieval times so it was used symbolically in painting and then with that symbolism came a lot of associations with blue, mm-hmm. for example, as a peaceful, spiritual yes. color. Yeah. So it's interesting to look at some of the pigments or the purple gets associated with royalty, royalty. or with mm-hmm. valor or with courage. Mm-hmm. And if you look at um, natural dyes for purple, they're very, very rare. There was one um, a mollusk. And they would extract, uh, they'd have something like 100,000 mollusks to get one gram of dye. And it was okay. very difficult, kind of a very mat, lot of process steps to, to make that. And so it was only used like on the mantles and right. the trim of the general's uh, uniforms. Oh. So that... That's why it it's, it's, it's connotated as rural. Yeah. Okay. And okay. then when okay. they wanted, I forget which American president wanted to make the purple heart so he was choosing kind of that as a symbolic color Mm. so that sort of reinforces and perpetuates that kind of symbolism so I think there's Mm. there's a lot of instances if you look at where say particular pigments came from Mm -hmm. or dyes um, historically and Mm -hmm. and culturally Mm -hmm. then you know that does feed into a lot of symbolism today Great, and even talking about um, uh, rarity with pigments and whatnot. Mm-hmm. I'm by trade, I'm a, cer- I'm a ceramic artist, mm. and so we work with. And I loved uh, the glazing aspect mm-hmm. of ceramics. It's quite. Uh, there's a lot of chemistry in it. People don't understand. Huge, yeah. yeah. People magic. don't know that yeah. <laughs> it is magic. It's you know when the heat comes yeah. on, and, you know you you do a line test of of cobalts, or you do mm-hmm. a line test of you know lime greens, hoping to get that lime green, mm-hmm. and then it comes out brown. You know. Yeah. <laughs> And then you go back again and you do the 12 steps. But um, even thinking about uh, color pigmentation, cobalt, you know, is quite uh, 
uh, you know, Chinese painting, Chinese um, pottery. And then uh, chrome is a, such an interesting pigment for, mm-hmm. for me because it gives you greens and then it gives right. you pinks and mauves right. and everything in between. Uh, and then uh, here in North America, we lead was out, like we couldn't use lead in ceramics. Mm-hmm. Uh, so then whenever you got something close to a red, it was always, you know, that <laughs> that re- that real joy and, mm-hmm. oh, we got it uh, mm-hmm. really close to red. So uh, thinking about chemistry and the whole culture of ceramics and uh, uh, its long history with um, with the pigment of blue. Right. Sorry, the pigment of blue. Is, yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> like when you talked about, yeah, the, the rarity and like the mm-hmm. uh, the experimentation. Uh, and the, co- yeah, yeah cobalt's used in mm-hmm. paint. Like yeah. it's used in glass, mm-hmm. ceramics, mm-hmm. and the reason that it's always giving blues is mm-hmm. because of the microscopic structure of it mm. and the way that it's, its electrons sit around it. So they tend to absorb mm. long wavelengths, red wavelengths, and leave blue short wavelengths to be reflected back. So you can actually, we delve into the mm. minutiae of the yeah. microscopic, and then you can see how it applies. And they... <laughs> Or they use it in fireworks or, you know, yes. the same thing can yes. be used in. And it's all down to the microscopic structure. So I think it's really wow. interesting. And it's always and so re- cobalt is always so reliable. Like, asking Right, <laughs> right. <laughs> we know. When we, yeah, it's, it's such a reliable, uh, it's a go-to. <laughs> And something else that you kind of brought up that I wanted to get into was, uh, I think you, you brought up sound and color. Mm-hmm. And uh, the group, Blues and Rock Group, Alabama Shakes, uh, they were really big. Um, well, they're, they're, they're still very, very big, but they came out with an album called uh, Sound and Color. And I was listening to this song. Um, you know, the music and the vocals are, you know, they're very eerie and they're very beautiful. And the title of their album is Sound and Color, but mm-hmm. then they have also got a song. And the, the album is black and white. Mm. And so I think that's that, that, that void of color. But just a couple of lyrics that I wanted to kind of think about um, that stood out, thinking about sound and abilities, um, uh, differently abled people, and how we kind of perceive color and sound so mm-hmm. uh they were t- life is sound and color love is sound and color sound and color with me in my mind and so i guess i'd like to yeah i'd like to think about that a little bit more and think about maybe should we put more emphasis on hearing color or mm-hmm. do you know of any technology that hears color for like in order to maybe someone that can't uh, perceive or does not perceive a certain color. Is there a sound attached to it? Mm-hmm. Like, is that? I mean, that's a very literal connection. Mm-hmm. But even thinking about um, in my in my masters, I did I did a project on listening to photographs. Right. And so bringing in sound and just th- like just thinking about the sounds that were evoked from an image. I think mm-hmm. that was so. Um, you know, I could hear like every like things happening and and. Uh, you know, the voices, I mean, this is just all me, my interpretation of this, mm-hmm. but this is what I'm getting, this is what is being evoked from uh, from this very visual piece of work, but I was attaching sound to it. Mm-hmm. So I think now, attaching sound to color, I think that is a very um, kind of ephemeral sort of philosophical way to think about color. Right, yeah, um, for sure. Like, yeah. there's two There's two things we can talk about. One mm-hmm. is a group of people who actually do uh, hear sound mm-hmm. when they look at color which are people with synesthesia. Okay. Mm-hmm. So, or people who um, look at black letters or something and see them as colored. But mm-hmm. often it's a sound. So the sound color just made me immediately think mm. about 
people who listen to music and then see colors, mm-hmm. or sometimes people look at colors and they hear mm-hmm. sounds. So it's just a different way that the brain works mm-hmm. in probably more people than we think. Mm-hmm. Like it's because people have it's the brain has an increased connectivity with people who have synesthesia okay. so babies are all have synesthesia mm-hmm. I've seen um, I know one researcher who's worked with infants and she hooks them up to EEGs and like when they look at something their whole brain lights wow. up or when they touch something their whole brain lights up so all their senses are yes. all interconnected mm-hmm. and then as they get older the neurons start to pair so they separate but people with synesthesia mm-hmm. likely retain higher uh, connectivities. So when they are uh, encounter a color, that might also signal the sound part of their brain to activate. So mm. they see, they hear, you know, hear color. <laughs> they um, and and all the senses can be involved, and even mm-hmm. things that we might not call a sense, but just might be some sort of innate perception. Right. So personalities might trigger something, or mm-hmm. I think um, auras to a scientist are not uh, believed but mm-hmm. someone with synesthesia might actually see colors with different mm-hmm. personality traits or things like that so I think that there might be some underlying truth in that for some people mm-hmm. so there's been a real in the last 20 years upsurgence of study of by scientists of synesthesia with brain mapping mm. and trying to basically understand how because someone with synesthesia has a more conscious access mm. to what is unconscious mm. in everybody else. Right. So with that, there have been developments of kind of using one part of the brain to tap in to another part. So mm-hmm. exactly what you're talking about, mm-hmm. using reflectivity, degree of reflectivity from a surface or the color of the surface to translate into a sound mm-hmm. and allow someone without sight. So they, yeah. I, I have seen um, technology like that. Okay. So, so certain things which will will allow someone to pick something up. Yes. And so it make fact, make use of the relac- reflectivity either just based on tone or value, mm-hmm. but maybe also based on the wavelength of frequency as well. But there certainly are um, sort of instances of a very small number of people, but people Mm -hmm. who um, have that technology to help them to see using sound. And then there's Mm -hmm. then the brain, like the brain is so adaptive and so plastic. Mm -hmm. So then it's just like the way that they perceive the world is becomes totally integrated with mm-hmm. the sound generating something. Mm-hmm. So it's possible for our like our brains mm. are so crazy. Right? <laughs> yeah, they are. <laughs> and mm-hmm. so it's possible to for the brain to compensate for things mm-hmm. which have been lost. For example, if people had have had strokes, then um, other parts of their brains can take over, so they mm-hmm. can relearn tasks right. again. Yes, yes. Or if someone is learning something like playing violin, mm-hmm. different parts of their brain will actually show increases in amounts of gray matter. Mm-hmm. Or people who meditate mm-hmm. a lot show increases in their frontal lobe. So the brain is plastic, and that's mm-hmm. something that's within the last 15 years. Okay. So I think that mm-hmm. certainly technology can 
and will be used mm-hmm. to tap into this uh, property of the brain of mm-hmm. being so adaptive mm-hmm. and being able to translate from one sense to another if 15% of the population does that all the time right. already. You know, maybe if people are lacking uh, one sense, can we use another to initiate it? Yes. It's exciting. It is exciting. And I think, uh, I mean, I wasn't, I knew that we were doing this podcast, and so I really wanted to bring up, um, I really wanted to kind of talk about, yeah, the sound and and color, just because, Mm -hmm. I mean, my interest in music and my interest in uh, culture and everything, I just really wanted to see if there was uh, some sort of like scientific uh, connection of these, see if there was some technologically... Yeah. Certain, uh, um, yeah, mm-hmm. and a lot of composers have yeah. this synesthesia, so mm-hmm. they would compose their music based on something that they saw or based on colors, mm-hmm. or the music would generate colors. Like, it's... And there's, like, emotional components yes. as we well. Yes, we didn't even talk... Yeah, we yeah. haven't even talked about no, the emotional... There's so many things. And there's so many things involved, and color is often a part of the synesthesia. I think because mm-hmm. it's sort of not a... It's a lesser sense. Okay. Like if synesthesia... If your brain always generated sound, for mm-hmm. example, that might hinder you, mm-hmm. your survival in the world. But color is sort of an extra bonus right. tag. So it tends to often happen with color. And I guess we can... Let's maybe... Uh we can talk about the emotion of color because I think a lot of people, uh, we talked about color, uh, I guess, association and the emotion or the nature of color, I think, is really interesting and something that people can really kind of grasp, I think, uh, because often it's like, OK, I see, it. you know, let's think about Valentine's Day. It's red. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's mm-hmm. an advertising uh, <laughs> uh, methodology. And then but also like it, it emotes red is love it's passion you know but i wonder do you talk do you talk about the uh, you probably talk about a little bit about the emotion of color in your i not so much yeah just because again it's something that's hard to measure hard to measure and Mm -hmm. um the other thing about sort of having a scientific measurement is is trying to extrapolate to the universal so a red may kind of activate a lot of people but maybe not everybody Mm -hmm. so when when you're trying to put something in a scientific framework Mm -hmm. then those sorts of accommodations become more difficult to create the sort of overarching Mm -hmm. idea or theory so it's sort of it's kind of you're hitting against a limitation right with that yeah and yeah we talk we uh we touch on it a little bit as well and i mean something so abstract as you know attaching color to to emotion but uh but i find that a lot of people come to understanding color with emotion, Absolutely. you know, blue sadness, yeah. uh, you know, just just really, you know, yellow happy, and and we see all of these things uh, all over in pop culture, in um, in society, mm-hmm. attaching colors to certain uh, to certain uh, emotions, and I mean, maybe it's kind of uh, fed into people, and so they believe that that's mm-hmm. the emotion of color, but. Uh, I think it's uh, yeah, it's hard, hard to um, kind of qualify that. Yeah. I think certainly having an yeah. awareness of it is yeah. important and, yeah. and keying in, because I think probably we all have a different sensitivity mm-hmm. to it, and maybe that ties into our genetic makeup of our mm-hmm. cones or something like that. Like mm-hmm. some people really love color, love strong color. Mm-hmm. Other people mm-hmm. need to have muted colors or mm-hmm. grays. 
it had those different personality types mm-hmm. associated yes, with, different with different colors, colors yeah. that kind of teasing that out scientifically mm-hmm. is more difficult. My training is like is physics, so yeah. I always say physics is easy <laughs> because <laughs> if you drop a ball, it falls down. <laughs> and you can yeah. say how fast it's right. going to fall, it's, yeah. and you know it's going to fall. You know everything. You can about, yeah. drop it on Mars, yeah. you know how fast it's going to fall. <laughs> you do, but, yes. you know, how someone responds to walking into a red room or something like mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. is, like, yeah. so hard yeah. to measure. Like, um, Faber Buren, when he read the studies of how red was, like, anxiety-inducing, yeah. he mm-hmm. painted his whole apartment red, red. Yes. and just found it peaceful (laughs) yeah (laughs) yeah so i think the untangling the subjective yes is difficult but i mean certainly color has a lot of power yes on people yeah because as designers we're all i Mm -hmm. mean we're working with uh yeah we're creating you know spaces interiors Mm -hmm. and creating um online environments creating uh, objects and whatnot so thinking about color and its emotion that's when i think it that's where it kind of comes in Mm -hmm. But uh, and then creating something for your client and making sure that they like if it was all like if it was anxiety producing, then, you know, you need to, of course, uh, adjust uh, accordingly. But uh, thinking about all of these things in relation to your uh, to your designer and being sort of aware, I think uh, mm-hmm. that's what we try to and at least that's what we try to that's what I try to do in my classes anyway or mm-hmm. in my work, try to create this awareness right of, right. Uh, of color and its uh, backgrounds, its potential, its power. Is there anything else that you wanted to? Uh, oh, a couple of questions I had recently on um, so-called color blindness. Okay. And mm-hmm. um, I actually like the term alternate color vision. Great, thank you. Better, yes. Because it's not that people called normal in quotes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Trichromats have these three types of cones: red, green, and blue. So someone who is so-called color blind um, either has one type of cone completely absent or has an alternate version of the third type of cone so that the colors that they receive in their eye, the wavelengths they receive in their eye are not the same as the general population, but they still receive those wavelengths Mm -hmm. and their brain still interprets those wavelengths, but it's a different... We can't really know what they see. Like, Mm -hmm. I've had a number of students in my classes over the years, and the red or green, so-called color blindness, Mm -hmm. um, tends to happen most in males. In males, yes. It's the the gene that codes that is on the X chromosome. So if a woman has um, sort of a gene that will create the wrong type of cone, her other X chromosome is probably okay, so it's got the right coding. So women tend to be carriers, Mm -hmm. so they pass it on to their sons. And then the blue, um, so-called blue color blindness, is very, very rare. It's just a genetic mutation. So I've known once, I had one student at York years ago who was blue color blind, so-called color blind, um, and he was a photographer. Mm -hmm. And so he would use Photoshop and different Mm -hmm. sorts of algorithms to color balance his images and... So he sort of did this workaround. But it was interesting because sometimes when you look at books or sources on color vision and color blindness, Mm -hmm. you see images. So someone who was so-called red color blind would see this. So I had an image like that for someone who was so-called blue color blind. Mm -hmm. And I asked him if that image matched, which it would have done. But Mm -hmm. he said, no, those images don't match. So trying to understand and predict what Mm -hmm. somebody sees. 
I think is extremely um, like we just can't know. Yeah, there's no way that we can know mm-hmm. what's you know we again as I said we agree on the mappings, mm-hmm. but what's actually going on in our little head of gray and white matter? Yeah. <laughs> And even for yeah. people that are not, uh, that have their full spectrum of color, right? Like yeah. It's hard to tell. Exactly. That. Mm-hmm. And the other interesting thing is that um, they're actually looking for people with four types of cones called tetrachromats. Oh. And um, the idea is that it's more likely to be women. And it would give an in, probably an increased um, sensitivity in the yellows and oranges. So there's uh, this property that's called metamerism. Okay. So you can have two different sources that might give off, for example, you may have a yellow light that's just pure exact spectral yellow. Hmm. So we just see pure yellow. And you might have another situation where you have actually red and green together, and Mm -hmm. that generates the perception of yellow exactly the same as the other one. So you have these two totally different situations mm-hmm. generating the exact same color in our eye and our brain. And so the idea is that maybe someone with an extra cone mm-hmm. could distinguish those two situations. Mm-hmm. Okay. So there's not any hard conclusive. There's a mm-hmm. handful of women that they found that might that are hinting to this. Okay. But uh, in the last 10 years, people are starting to do more studies and looking for... The search for Madame Tetrachromat. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay. yeah, they might tend to be artists or designers, too, yes, because yes. they would just have a greater sensitivity and selectivity yeah. for, for color matching. Thank you for listening to this episode. For more information, please check our website, quantization.ca. Next episode, we have a three-way conversation between Trevor Schultz, Hal Plotkin, and Yuta Treviranus on Platform Co-op. We want to thank all who support us. And a special thank to Marshall Bureau, who composed all the scores for Quantization. Podcast.